I have been uh, following along in your series through Daniel, uh, all the way from the first one through to last week, and likewise been challenged with you about shining in Babylon. What would that look like to live in the midst of our exile, thinking about how faithfulness to God in the big moments was really going to start with faithfulness to God in the small moments, thinking about what are the cultural idols in the city, but also the things that my own heart is allured to that would displace God as my chief affection, challenged by the idea that Babylon is, yes, a historical kingdom, but it's also a spirit of the age, challenged to think about how could I personally incorporate spontaneous prayer into my daily life, challenged last week and encouraged by that reality that God knows the future before it happens, and that's meant to encourage us today. All of these things and more from a book written some 2,500 years ago. It's incredible. And I'm glad that you're here this morning, and it's been my prayer as we prepare for this time together, that we would afresh be encouraged and equipped and reminded about our great king and his sovereignty and his care for his people. So let's, uh, let's stop together and let's pray and ask God for his blessing together. Father in heaven, you are gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you graciously have revealed yourself and called us to yourself and made a way through the person and work of Jesus. We rejoice that you've made us to know you and to be satisfied in our knowing and worshiping of you. Father, continue the work that you're doing here among Fair Oaks, but also among the individuals gathered here this morning. May your word, as it goes forth, accomplish the purposes for which you send it, and not return void, but Father, do that work in each of our lives that, that only you know how to do. So Spirit, be our teacher apply the truths of Daniel 8 uniquely into the lives who are here and the areas of our life that just so deeply need hope and change and encouragement. Father, all the power belongs to you. And so might I decrease that you would increase and speak to us now. Help us, Father, to see you and love you more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in the midst of a very broken and painful world. To use the language of Psalm 2, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. And for instance, just a week ago, the world observed the first anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. Nationally, there's a major question this year on many minds about this scary thing called inflation and how it's affecting lives and jobs and, and will the efforts of the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates tame inflation and how does that affect jobs and mortgages and the cost of living? Not to mention the upcoming political season as we approach 2024. And even locally in Portland, 
there's a major question and challenge that we face of homelessness, and it's visible every day as I drive through the city. And I know here in the Bay Area, that's a shared challenge in this city. And these are big questions and big challenges that reflect a very broken and painful world. And even personally, I've, I've spoken this past week with saints at, at Saving Grace who are gripped by shame and guilt for past sins and failures. They struggle to find hope. They feel paralyzed so quickly in the midst of intrusive thoughts. The, the reality of, of chronic pain and failing marriages and persistent sin and things that just don't change in their life that they desire to see overcome. They, probably like you, have things that make them lose color, to use the language earlier from Daniel last week and Belshazzar in chapter 5. I wonder, and I know that I haven't met you yet, but just this morning I'm getting to see you, we probably all have something in our life that would cause us to lose color, where the strength of us just drains out, and I don't feel like my real self. I feel like just a shell of who... God has made me to be. And when I look at that thing on the horizon that is a threat, the anxiety in me says that that's a threat and I can't control it. And I just, I feel weak. We ask the question then, what does it look like to shine in Babylon when I look at things like that and I'm just weak and feel powerless? Well, I'm grateful that you're here this morning and I'm, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach from Daniel chapter 8, because there's some really important truths for us, as they were for Daniel, to think about how do we find power to live boldly in the midst of exile and in the face of things that cause us to lose color. Daniel himself, at the very end of this chapter, finds himself overwhelmed, sick, appalled, not understanding the vision, and yet finds a way to rise and go about the king's business. And oh, that's what I want for us, is to somehow, in the midst of what we face and confront, that God might give you and I the strength to rise and be about the king's business. That's the kind of resolve that I hope the Lord would work in me, and I hope that you're wanting that too this morning. We got one. Thank you, Chad. Chad's here. Chad's participatory. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Well, here's the main point. If you get anything out of this morning, I pray that this text would convince you of this one thing. That I can live boldly today because God wrote the end of the story. I'll say it again. That I can live boldly today because God wrote the end of the story. I really believe that's the main thrust of this text. It's what impacts Daniel, and I, I'm hoping and praying that the Lord would use this passage to impact us in like manner. That you and I can live boldly today because we know that God wrote the end of the story. This idea of bold living is a feature of what shining in Babylon would look like. And so this passage is contributing something really important into that idea of bold living. 
So let's kind of get us caught up before we get into it and just introduce where we're at in the book of Daniel. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Chad talk about a major shift in the book of Daniel from the narrative portions of stories into a really different kind of writing, apocalyptic literature. And if you missed that, I'll just kind of repeat some of the key takeaways about apocalyptic writing. It's very symbolic. It's got a lot of visions and dreams that describe current events as well as future realities. There's often an angelic mediator or somebody who comes to try to explain what these things mean. And it describes or reflects the brokenness in the present world and gets at the fact that the world can't fix itself. It is that bad that we actually need the inbreaking of God. We need God to step in and fix it because the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. I heard of a professor who once said, the, the purpose, he's speaking, speaking about the purpose of apocalyptic literature this way. He said that Jewish apocalyptic literature are tracks for hard times. I loved that phrase. I thought that was so helpful. Tracks for hard times. A little something that you could hand to somebody, a little track. Say here, you need this right now to get you through hard times. It's written to encourage us today because today is hard in the midst of this broken and difficult world. Tracks for hard times, or to use the language of the main point from this morning, we can live boldly today because we know that God wrote the end of the story. So let's get into our passage this morning. If you're not already there, open with me to Daniel chapter 8, and I'll kind of orient us a little bit. Daniel chapter 7, last week, you might remember it jumped backwards in story time some 20 years and it's now out of order if we were reading chronologically. The gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, very sequential in the events of Jesus' life. But this is different. We're now backwards. And these chapters, Daniel 7 and 8, the first and third years of the reign of King Belshazzar, are actually occurring in story time, if you will, following Daniel 4, but prior to Daniel 5. So the handwriting on the wall hasn't happened yet. Daniel's sleepover with the lions in Daniel 6 hasn't happened yet. So we're backwards in story time now. And as we enter Daniel 8, Belshazzar still in power, and we end Daniel 7, if you look back at verse 28, just to remind ourselves, for me, Daniel, he says, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. So he saw the vision in Daniel 7, listen to last week's sermon, and he ends that greatly alarmed with his color lost. So for Daniel, he's probably living between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, those two years in between, with a lot of days where he wakes up with some lost color. There's a lot of static noise in the background of his mind, you might say where he's thinking back to those visions that he doesn't understand. There's a lot of questions I still have. I know God explains some things, but my life is really kind of overwhelmed with a lot of unanswered questions as I'm looking around me, and my color is still lost. Even though the Lord tried to help me understand, I don't understand. 
And so that's really encouraging to know that I'm not the only one who has difficulty going day to day. God explains some things, but then, oh, I still don't get it. And maybe you're like Daniel and me in this way, where the Lord will explain some things. I still have so many questions. So this is how Daniel enters chapter 8. A lot of these unanswered questions. Daniel did not get the benefit of hearing last week's sermon like you did. So he still got a lot of these questions. But the Lord comes to him again. So this is the vision here in Daniel chapter 8. So follow along with me starting now in Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I saw that I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision, and I saw that I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, I'm going to jump forward just a little bit into verse 15, where Daniel says, And when I, when I Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel knew, okay, this is important. I saw a vision previously. I need to try to understand this. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And so I hope that like Daniel, you and I, as we come on a Sunday morning, we sit before God's word recognizing that God who made heaven and earth has spoken to us. He's revealed himself. And so as we open his inerrant, perfect, infallible word, that we would seek to understand it together. And praise God, he sends the Spirit to teach and instruct us as to what the text means. And so what God does, verse 16 and 17 following, sounds very similar to last week's chapter in Daniel 7. And I heard a man's voice before, between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So this vision that Gabriel's about to explain to Daniel is actually going to have a good bit of overlap with last week. And so I'll draw some attention to those points of similarity. But let's just remind ourselves of the fact that, again, Daniel enters Daniel 8 not with the benefit of last week's sermon. He's got so many unanswered questions. And just now, two years later, there's some additional clarity that's going to come to him. And second, let's just note, this chapter is actually very similar to how Jesus would teach the parable of the sower. Uh, If you're familiar with Jesus' teaching there, he teaches the parable of the sower, and then just after it, he explains what it means to his disciples. And so this chapter is similar in that way, in that it's actually explained with a lot of detail. So what we're going to do as we go through the vision, we're going to jump around quite a bit to talk about the vision and then pair it with the explanation from Gabriel. So we'll jump around a lot, but if you keep your Bible open... I'll give you the references, or you can look on the screen, and, and uh, you'll, see, you'll see the passages. So the vision has four main parts to it. There's a ram with two horns, a goat with a horn. There are four horns, and then there's a little horn. And if you, this is your first time in the book of Daniel, welcome to Daniel. Uh, this is really confusing at first. Well, it's apocalyptic literature. Tracks for hard times. 
So let's get into it. The first part of the vision, the ram. Look with me there at verses 3 and 4. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Gabriel would later interpret verse 20, saying this, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So if you were here last week, this should sound familiar. Daniel 7 verse 5 talked about a lumpy bear that's raised on one side. And so this is the kingdom of Media and Persia as Gabriel explains the directions that that ram charge represents the scope and the, and the conquest and the advance of the kingdom. And it was fitting that a ram would be pictured here in the vision because historically we know that the Persian ruler would carry the gold head of a ram as he would lead his enemy or lead his army into enemy territory. And so Daniel would experience this in his life. When King Darius would roll into town, he would say, well, good morning, I've been expecting you. He knew about it before it happened. Daniel could live boldly because he knew that God wrote the end of the story. But the vision continued. There's now a goat with a horn. Look at verse 5. As I was considering, and I think it's worth noting that sometimes we hear something And then as I'm considering this, even more gets piled on top. And it can feel probably overwhelming at times, as it probably does for Daniel. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the face of the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Gabriel then later interprets this in verse 21, saying, And the goat is the king of of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. If you were here last week, this should sound familiar. This is the picture of the winged leopard from verse 6 back in Daniel chapter 7. That winged leopard with such great speed and agility could go quickly into the area it was seeking to conquer. And that's the connection and the parallel here. And so although Darius would rule, this other conquering king would enter. This is referring to the kingdom of Greece. This is Alexander the Great, is how we know him from history. His conquest was unrivaled. That phrase in verse 5, without touching the ground, refers to the great speed at which he would conquer. And none could resist his power. That phrase in verse 7 there, no one could stand before him. 
Enemies were trampled to the ground. If you're familiar with history, Alexander the Great took no prisoners. It was violent. It was quick. It was complete. I read of one battle where Alexander the Great came with 35,000 men against an enemy force of 100,000 men with 10,000 horsemen, and Alexander killed 20,000 of the enemy forces while losing just 100 of his own men. So in case you got lost in the numbers, while being outnumbered three to one, he would kill 20% of the enemy while losing just three-tenths of a percent of his own forces. So none could stand before Alexander the Great as he would advance. And his kingdom was vast. So I don't know if there's visual learners in the room. I know I'm at least one of them. And if you are, this will make you smile. Or if you're a, a lover of history, my, my wife Claire was an ancient history major, so she loves stuff like this. But um, just to get a picture of kind of the size of what we're talking about, um, there's a, uh, the next slide, I believe, is the, the scope of the kingdom of Babylon, that red blob is the kingdom and the extent of Babylon, okay? And that little red arrow would point to where Babylon is. So that's the Babylonian Empire. And the advance of Alexander the Great, his empire, so now just kind of like take a picture of that in your mind when we go to the next side slide, you'll see it just like expand. Whoa. Okay. Now I know every, all that writing is probably really small to read. So if it's hard to get a picture of it, maybe a frame of reference that is more near to home. The Babylonian Empire was, by square mileage, about the size of California, give or take. The empire of Alexander the Great is some 10 times the size of California. So the extent of his kingdom is vast. None could stand before his power. His conquest was complete and great. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Hellenization of the world, this is it. This is the Greek culture being spread and propagated around the known world at the time. They would take the Greek language and extend that through the known region. They would make extensive systems of roads and take that Hellenistic culture throughout the region. And what Alexander the Great didn't know but what God, who wrote the end of the story, was doing was preparing that region with a common language and system of travel so that when the inbreaking of God comes in the person and work of Jesus, the gospel message can just spread like wildfire through a commonly known language and through a system of roads making travel easy so that this little new church can just begin to spread a new kingdom will come because God wrote the end of the story. It's no, this king's reign is no surprise. It does not catch God off guard. It actually plays right into his plans. But the vision continues. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Gabriel later interprets this in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his 
power. And so what we know from history is that Alexander the Great conquered this great region and then he died at a young age and had no direct heirs to take his throne. And so his vast kingdom was broken up and given to and ruled by four of his top generals. The, the reality then is that the promised land where God's people were to live, Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding regions, kind of became this land bridge stuck in between two major powers of Egypt and the areas of Syria within the Middle East. And so they become kind of a pawn, constantly conquered, marched through by various forces over the coming decades and centuries. But this wouldn't catch God off guard because he wrote the end of the story. And yet for Daniel, the vision continues. Look now at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great and grew towards the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. He continues. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long does the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How often do we ask such a question? How long, O Lord? How long will such a horrific thing last? Verse 14, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Gabriel would then interpret later in verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but, not by, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Much like the fourth part of the vision in Daniel 7, the fourth part of the vision here in Daniel 8, much more gripping, much lengthier, and much more distressing for Daniel. So much more detail is given. There's strong agreement among commentators here that this little horn to be raised up as the person that history knows as Antiochus IV. And 200 years after Alexander's kingdom was divided up, Antiochus would raise to power in Syria. 
And during his reign, he would take an especially violent and hostile posture towards Jerusalem. He sought to make Jerusalem a Greek city and erase and displace all the Jewish customs and ways. And as a result, the the temple, which was eventually rebuilt, was actually looted and robbed to pay Roman taxes. Copies of the Old Testament scriptures were confiscated and burned. Jewish customs were suspended and outlawed. He would execute vast numbers of men, women, and children. He would within the Holy of Holies, bring an end to the Jewish sacrificial system, mocking it by putting up a Greek god, a temple to Zeus there within the temple, and installing his own high priest to mock the Jews. And even more horrific than that, and if you know your Old Testament, the idea that a pig would be sacrificed upon the altar, you would know that that would be so repulsive to God's people as they sought to rightly honor and worship God in the sacrificial system. And yet that's exactly what Antiochus IV would do. And without getting into the dating theories around the 2300 evenings and mornings, that period of time would conclude when a group known as the Maccabees would would bring together a rebellion and recapture the temple and restore it to its rightful function of worship and the sacrificial system, worshiping Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, as it was rightly meant to be in the temple. And this is what the Jews celebrate today, known as Hanukkah. So this is very um, traumatic within the progression of God's people. All of these different oppressions and movements and the experience of exile and being oppressed and conquered over and over and over again, Daniel learns about all these things some 400 years before they actually take place. But two things we should note from this passage, look at verse 23, that phrase in there that when transgressors have reached their limit, it reminds Daniel and should remind you and I as well that there is a limit to the suffering of of our lives. There is a limit to the evil of the day. Evil and oppression will have a last day. It does not go on unendingly. And so just as in the book of Revelation we read that there's a fixed number of martyrs yet to be killed for the testimony of the gospel, so there is a fixed limit to pain and trouble in your life and in mine. Look at verse 24. There's a phrase there that His power shall be great, but not by his own power is an important reminder for us that all authorities are actually underneath God's ultimate authority. There is no such thing as a rogue nation in this sense where a king or kingdom would just operate completely disconnected from any other authority functioning autonomously. They might think that they are, But at the end of the day, God rules over all. As Paul would say it this way in Romans 13, there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is always holding the reins, or his hands are always on the steering wheel. All governmental authorities are governed by the one true king, God. So, Daniel hears all this. 
And perhaps like you this morning is like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I heard some of this last week, and even with the primer coming in, it's, boy, that's a lot to chew on. Look at how Daniel responds. He, he sees the ram coming, Darius, media Persia. He, he hears about the goat coming, the kingdom of Greece headed by Alexander, the four horns afterwards, and then the little horn, Antichus IV. He's effectively told it's going to get worse before it gets better. How does he respond? Okay, look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And I'm going to jump forward just a little bit now. We'll come back. I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. One commentator said, Daniel has godly emotional depression at this point. I've heard what the Lord has said, I believe him, and I'm overcome by it. My color's lost again. End of Daniel 7, it's like a repeat. The grief is so severe, he is sick for some days, he doesn't understand it. Even though an angel was sent to help him understand. And maybe you and I can relate where we have these kind of days where we're confronted by the reality of, of what's to come as we read the scriptures, or maybe what we see happening in our lives, and we're overcome. We can't get out of bed. Maybe it's those days when those faith-toppling, crisis-creating, faith-shaking, life-reorganizing events that don't actually bring order, but rather chaos, happen to us. They interrupt us, and we're sick and overcome. I don't understand. Daniel can relate to you, and you can relate to Daniel. So I just want to say, if, if that's you this morning, and maybe you're coming in with that type of experience, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. Because Daniel chapter 8 takes us into a place where Daniel is experiencing something similar, and the Lord is going to give great power and perspective to Daniel. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to talk about it. Don't experience that in isolation. God did not save us into a solo Christianity, but he saved us into a church, into a body, into a family. We're not meant to live isolated from one another, but rather to voice that. And so be talking about the struggles in your life, the areas that you don't understand with either your pastors or, or other brothers and sisters in your gospel communities that I hear so much about. And so be taking those to other people. And I just want to say, not only as a pastor, but just as a fellow Christian, that when somebody comes to me and says, this is where I'm losing color and I don't understand it, would you just listen and pray with me? It, it doesn't catch me off guard. It's not an interruption in my day. It's actually a highlight of my day. Not because I rejoice at the hardship you go through, but isn't that what God is like equipping us to do, to bear burdens with each other? Like what a gift that somebody would invite me into the struggle of their life. Or when I go to somebody else to bring them into mine. It does not surprise me if somebody says my life is a mess. Because my life is a mess. Like you've, you're talking to a fellow struggler, a fellow sinner. And so your mess looks a little different than mine. 
But boy, I've got areas right now in my life that the Lord is shining a flashlight on, specifically, and how I, I find it really hard to be patient as my first response to my kids. And so that's an area where I'm, I'm bringing in my guys that I meet with on Thursday morning to talk about what those circumstances are like and what the scriptures are that the Lord is trying to put into my head as my first thought in those moments where there's a parenting opportunity in front of me for, for Claire and I so that what they see is, is a patient, loving father, not, a, not an irritated one who got interrupted by the inconvenience of my child that is a blessing actually in my life and yet see the conflict in my life now. And, and so my life is a mess and yours is too. But the Lord is in the business of making us more and more like Jesus. So let's bring others into our lives and not be surprised when we're talking about that with one another. The gospel should lower the bar a little bit to say, well, yes, if we're all following Jesus, we're all mutually confessing that we're all sinners in need of grace. It should not surprise us. We're in good company. So let's, let's turn our mind back here to Daniel because in verse 27, something unthinkable happens. He is, verse 27, he's overcome, he lays sick for some days, appalled, not understanding it, but then he rose and went about the king's business. Did you catch that? Like that should be kind of dropping our jaw a little bit. Because he's not just getting out of bed, rising out of bed. He's actually, if you know the story of Daniel, he's rising, not just from bed, but rising to the top of the political order in Babylon, right? So much so that he's interpreting the writing on the wall with excellence and boldness. Darius is noting that, wow, he is with excellence managing affairs of the kingdom. I want to put him over all of the kingdom. So Daniel is with excellence rising and being about the king's business, where does that kind of power come from? Where does that kind of power for bold living, resilience, and faith come from? Daniel can live boldly because he knows that God wrote the end of the story. The feature of Daniel 7 last week and that vision is to say this, that in contrast to the earthly kingdoms of man, the heavenly kingdom of God never comes to an end. The feature of the vision here in Daniel 8 is to say that the kingdoms of man will come and they will go, but their days are numbered. So Daniel can live boldly because he knows God wrote the end of the story. There are limits as the nations rage and as the kingdoms totter. History is not open-ended, meaning God is not up in heaven just kind of looking down waiting to see what's going to happen. I wonder what today will be like. God does not say that. The Bible does not present a God who is merely transcendent, meaning that God is higher than, separate from, above his creation. Yes, God is that, but not only that, because God is not only transcendent, he is also imminent. He is intricately involved with every day and detail of our lives. So just as God would set the boundary of the kingdoms, he will feed the sparrows outside of our windows. Just as God has written how many days there are in our lives, he knows what you and I need before we even ask of him. So this is a God that we can trust. 
And I wonder, are you trusting him? Is he your refuge? Is he your king? Is he your place of refuge as we live in this painful, broken world where the kingdoms rage and the nations, or the nations rage and as the kingdoms totter? I would recommend that you read Psalm 2 this week. It would be excellent supplemental reading to this very chapter, talking about how, yes, nations rage, kingdoms totter, and yet God has his king on his holy hill. Knowing that God has determined the end of all things, written the end of the story, gives Daniel boldness and power to live boldly. So what about for us? What about for you and I? Do you know how your story ends? Jesus would speak about it in an almost apocalyptic type vision in Matthew chapter 25, alluding to the end. He says this, uh, verses 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And, and apart from Christ, the end of that story is terrifying and tragic. Because what Jesus says is this in verse 41. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the end of the story for those who live in rebellion to King Jesus is terrifying. It's only experiencing the wrath and justice of God for eternity. And God, who is perfectly just, will see justice fulfilled. But God, who is perfectly just, also made a way to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, such that he would send Christ to seek and save the lost, to live a perfect life, and then for Jesus to die on a cross for the sins of all who turn and trust in him, so that the perfect judge doesn't have to just kind of ignore and uh, forget about the wrong things that we've done in our life, but no, but those things are actually paid for in full by the Son on the cross, And so that would enable then Jesus to say to the sheep, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, what a glorious end that story is. And that's made possible because of what Jesus did. And so I hope and pray that you're here this morning as a joyful submitter to and follower of Jesus. Paul would say it this way in Romans 10. He would say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and with the mouth that you would confess and are saved. So come to Jesus as the king who actually reigns right now, regardless of whether or not anyone recognizes it. He is the true king who declares the end from the beginning. He wrote the end of the story already. And when we do, 
That gives us power for some bold living unlike anything else ever could. Because Jesus frees us from slavery to works and trying to prove ourselves. And as his child now, we can live in this new kingdom he is making. Jesus talks about it this way in Mark chapter 8. Calling his disciples to him, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's bold living. That is living in Babylon in a way that doesn't look like any other place. And so as Jesus speaks there in, in, in Mark 8, 34, 35, it's just so peculiar. It's that upside down kingdom that the way that we live is through death. And the way that we gain is by giving. We're just following Jesus' footsteps. We're living in the life that he purchased for us. And that same reality is true for us now, that I can live boldly today because God wrote the end of the story. That's where power for living in exile comes from, knowing that there's hope, having confidence in, the how, in how my story ends gives me confidence for living today. It's certainty in the future that gives me boldness today. This Reality is a track for hard times. If I know that future rescue is coming, I have power to live today. But there are so many days when I wake up losing color, right? As, as we alluded to previously. And I find such a friend in the dad of Mark 9 who is struggling in that same manner because his son has a, an unclean spirit. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, oh, I believe, but help my unbelief. I feel like that's so often such a perfect picture of my heart where I, I, I believe, yes, but I feel like there's so much assaulting my ability to believe. And so help me there. Help me, Lord. Carry me on. And so I wonder what part of our lives today are we looking at causing us to lose color? filling us with anxiety because we look at the threat on the horizon and saying, I can't control that. God, give me strength. One thing that we can say to such a person is here in Daniel 8, that we can live boldly today because we know that God wrote the end of the story. At, uh, at Saving Grace, we are presently preaching through the book of Colossians. And just last week, we were in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, which contributes just such a helpful parallel and echo of this idea right now, where Paul in Colossians 3, 4 says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, thinking of the future, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a beautiful end of our story, saints. We have so much to look forward to. Think about it. Do you and I have a Daniel 7, 8-esque kind of apocalyptic vision to look forward to and read today to be a track for hard times for us? And if you know your Bible, you can nod your head. Why, yes. It's called the book of Revelation, David. And I would say, you're right. Isn't it amazing? It's overwhelming, and I don't understand it all, and there's all kinds of wild, crazy things in there. And yet, listen to this one part. 
Interestingly, the book of Revelation says, if you read it, you will be blessed, so I commend it to you. Maybe ask your pastor to preach through it someday. You're welcome. (laughs) Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4 says this. Think about the beauty of the end of our story. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall, be no, their, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Saints, may that unshakable, unending, unfading, unmatched, beautiful end of our story give us power and encouragement today. Hmm. I'm reminded, too, that before we close, Jesus, in like fashion, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but one who has in every way been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Much like Daniel, much like you and I, Jesus himself had days where he lost color, where he was literally sick and in anguish where he, like Daniel, needed an angel to come strengthen him, where he needed to likewise pray, and where he too would ultimately, very literally, for the sake of our salvation, rise up and be about the king's business. This is what's recorded about Jesus on the night when he is betrayed. Luke 22, 41 and following. And when he withdrew from them, so he withdrew from his disciples, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going off to pray about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He knows the cross is just hours away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, the color being lost from him, he prayed all the more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, those drops of blood perhaps drying on his forehead, and yet he rises and he goes about the king's business to save all who turn and trust in him, to give us faith and voices from which to join that angelic chorus, to declare that he is worthy. And he rises from prayer and comes to his disciples and heads to the cross, being about the king's business, to go and die for all who turn and trust in him. Jesus lived boldly for us by the strength given to him by God, knowing that God wrote the end of the story. And that gave him confidence to live boldly in that moment because there is an end of the story where God is worshiped in heaven by his people, free from sin, free from death, perfectly into eternity, unendingly enjoying the beauty and the presence of God forevermore. What a glorious end of our story as God's children we have to look forward to. Might God, by his strength, empower you and I towards that same end? 
Because Jesus would likewise go before Pilate and say, you don't have any authority to kill me. I lay my life down willingly. You're not a rogue nation. You're under God's authority. Peter, on the day, the preaching at Pentecost, would say, this wasn't a mistake, folks. This is the unfolding of God's sovereign, wise plan. God wrote the end of the story. May he give us power to live boldly today in light of it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we tremble at the reality of what you have done to save us, that Jesus himself would share some of that agony, some of the bewilderment, some of the grief, and all the weakness of beholding and confronting your plan and yet feeling weak, and yet by your strength, rising and being about the king's business. Your business to seek and save the lost for the praise of your name unendingly. Oh, Father, give us hearts that rejoice that Jesus was strong when we were weak and could do nothing to save ourselves, but bought our lives so that we could experience your presence in glory forever free from the threat of sin, where there will be no day that comes, which again causes us to lose color. But our color will be full and bright and vibrant in the presence of you. Lord, we love you. And I, and I pray for us as, as, as we encounter such days that cause us to be weak. Father, remind us that you've written the end of the story. Empower us, Lord, to trust you. We believe, but Father, help our unbelief. Give us power to live boldly and to shine in exile. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.